Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. Welcome, as a matter of fact, to the 150th Expanding Eyes podcast. 150th. It hardly seems possible to me, I must confess. Almost three years worth of podcasts. And it has been wonderful for me. And I want to take this opportunity to thank my listeners, especially those who have been with the podcast, maybe from the beginning, uh, certainly through the years, almost three years now. I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope that you are not getting tired of this because I, for one, am not at all getting tired of it. And I hope to be around for the 300th podcast because there are many wonderful works of literature and mythology worth talking about. And I hope that we can go on talking about them together for a long time. Presently, we are talking about Shakespeare's so-called problem comedy, Measure for Measure. And having reached the point of Act 4, we are beginning to get a pretty clear idea of why critics have deemed this and two other plays problem comedies. It's looking more problematic by the minute. We shall see how it all comes out. In Act 4, Scene 1, the Duke, who, if anybody has a chance of turning the god-awful mess of the first three acts around into anything remotely resembling the happy ending of a conventional comedy, it's the Duke with whatever dark plan he may think he's got in mind. Right now, we don't know, but he's clearly pulling the strings here, pulling the strings there. Because the play has reached its darkest bottommost point in Act 3 previously, and Suddenly, the rhythm changes from verse to prose. The Duke steps forward disguised as Friar Lodewick and produces a new character that changes the game, produces Mariana, who it turns out is the former girlfriend or fiance of Angelo. Angelo has condemned our romantic lead, Claudio, to death based on an absurd law that was on the books, a law that gave him the power to condemn poor Claudio to death simply for getting his fiance, his legally contracted but secret fiance, pregnant before the actual ceremony. So now Claudio is in prison and up to die for this. Meanwhile, Angelo is trying to extort sex from Claudio's sister, thereby being guilty of something far, far worse than Claudio ever did. And to make it even worse than that, Isabella is in a nun's habit. She is 
has been living in a convent and is on the verge of becoming a nun. She just simply has not taken final vows yet. What a mess. Angelo is extorting Isabella. You have to go to bed with me, uh, otherwise your brother dies. If you give in to me, your brother may live. Vicious scheme. And it looks like an impasse. It looks like a dead end in all senses of the term until suddenly the Duke changes the perspective by producing Mariana, who has been waiting in something called the Moated Grange, an isolated country house, mooning over Angelo, who has jilted her because her dowry has been lost. Her brother died at sea and her dowry went down with him. Angelo broke the engagement, spread vicious rumors about Mariana's chastity and womanhood all over town to cover the fact that he was breaking this off for mercenary reasons, so more viciousness on his part. Nonetheless, here's Mariana, and in scene one of act four, Mariana and Isabella meet each other, and they have a man in common to talk about, Angelo. And what will develop, looking forward a little, is a friendship between these two women, which will figure crucially in the final outcome of the play. And this is remarkable in the sense that this is not the first time that Shakespeare has paid attention to the importance of female friendship, friendship between women. It was there already in the much earlier play, Midsummer Night's Dream, although it was satiric. The women are easily turned against each other the minute a man enters into the picture. And we could almost think of Measure for Measure as perhaps Shakespeare very definitely did look backward to previous plays and continue to process some of the same material. And it may be that he is going back to examine the theme of women's friendship and perhaps treating it a little more fairly this time. But let's give him credit for recognizing it as an important thing in an era which would have discounted it as unimportant. Male friendship was counted as important, and Shakespeare, in one of his earliest comedies, Two Gentlemen of Verona, is already dealing with the theme of male friendship. But women's friendship would not normally have been regarded as important enough to figure in something, even, as a, even like a comedy. Shakespeare, to his credit, makes this count in the play at the end in a big way. At any rate, the two women meet each other, and there's a plan. Angelo has made an arrangement with Isabella. The duke has dressed as the friar. The friar has counseled Isabella to seem to go along 
with Angelo, and Angelo has therefore made an arrangement. This has to be in secret, so she is to go at night into his place through a vineyard in his garden. So we have a little more of the what Northrop Fry called the green world, the moated grange. A grange is a country house, a place out in the country, away from city and court. And now we have another vineyard and garden, a sense of a green world. Fry says that there, there are whole comedies of the green world. Midsummer Night's Dream is, in fact, one of the easiest to see. The action leaves the court, goes out in the woods, and all sorts of magical, goofy and absurd, but wonderful things happen to turn a mess around into a happy ending and wedding music by Mendelssohn. Here, it's much more attenuated. It's not a forest. It's just a touch of green here, a touch of green there. But nevertheless, I think Shakespeare is signifying something of the same symbolism. Isabella pretends to go along with the deal. She's going to meet him in this vineyard in his garden. Angelo gives her a key. And she is to give out the cover story that she's come about her brother. We shall see. We move in scene two of Act Four to the prison where Claudio is being held under sentence of death, but we have a new inhabitant of the prison, Pompey, who is the lower class parallel figure to Claudio. He fulfills that function which is common in Shakespearean comedy. We have usually a romantic love plot amongst the better-born characters that is foremost, but we also have the comic relief of lower-class characters, and that's Pompey, and it, it always forms a parallel in some way, though often satiric, with the main romantic plot. And sure enough here, Pompey has been apprehended by Little Elbow, the officer of the law, who has managed, he has succeeded in apprehending his suspect, and Pompey has been sentenced to prison for being a pimp. Part of his rehab, as I guess we should call it, is that he actually has to work while he's in prison for the hangman, who is humorously named Abhorson, and learn the mystery, as Abhorson keeps referring to it, the mystery of our craft or calling, as if it were almost a religious ritual. And again, we get religious language, even though with a satiric touch, in a play that has a biblical title and eventually is going to have some religious implications. In the prison, right now, is the duke dressed as the friar. And the duke is finding out. The duke says of himself in third person to Lucio that the duke is one who has always striven to know himself. 
Here is a moment in which the Duke is finding out something about himself in a rather disconcerting way. He is finding out that though his intentions are good, he is not infallible. He has misjudged. He was sure that Angelo would pardon Claudio since Angelo is now at least on the verge and is going to be, or at least hopes he's going to be, guilty of a very similar fault to Claudio's. So he would be a total hypocrite for putting Claudio to death for a sexual sin when his own is far worse. And the Duke finds out that even he, who is always making remarks about the evil of human nature, but even he has not plumbed the true depth of how low people are capable of going because a letter arrives to the provost, the officer of the law who runs the prison, more or less a warden, a letter from Angelo saying, execute Claudio early and bring me the head as proof. Almost like a folktale motif, almost like a Snow White sort of thing, same motif. Why is this? Well, the Duke might have thought this through. We have to wait until a bit later when we do get a soliloquy by Angelo giving the reason, and the reason is fairly expectable. Why does Claudio have to die? Because Claudio may very well, if Claudio is allowed to live, and finds out that Angelo has basically raped his sister, Claudio might come after him for revenge. So we have to eliminate that possibility, even though it's an act of pure treachery. The Duke's plans are thereby upset, and he has to think fast and change his game all of a sudden. He basically has to improvise, but He's up for it. He's a regular Odysseus in coming up with a new plan. Well, we have a notorious criminal here in the prison named Barnardine. Cut off Barnardine's head instead. He's condemned to death, so it doesn't matter. Uh, cut off Barnardine's head and send it to Angelo and claim that it's Claudio's. But the Duke, again, is brought up short, however temporarily, this time not by treachery, but by its opposite, by unexpected goodness. The provost turns out to be incorruptible, very inconvenient when somebody is not corruptible when it would help matters if they were corruptible and willing to bend the law a little bit, but the provost says, pardon me, good father, it is against my oath to pull that deception and not follow out the orders of Angelo, of whom he is the properly deputed officer of the law. And the Duke's response is to be 
rather touched by this. He says, this is a gentle provost. And the word gentle is interesting in this case because gentle often means high-born, but here it means worthy. Worthy in the way that high-born people are supposed to be, but like Angelo, sometimes are not. This is a lower class character who is noble and refuses to do something that is against his oath. He refuses to be corrupted, even in a minor way, for a good cause. He is one of two. He is matched at the other end of the social class spectrum by Aeschylus, who is also a genuinely good man. So we have to say, and we will say it again when we draw everything together at the end and ask ourselves, what is the upshot of this play? There are so many comments in the play about how corrupt humanity is that you begin to wonder whether the attitude of the play is not in the end, ironically cynical, but not so. There are people like Aeschylus and the provost, and social class, it is not because of their social class. One is highborn and one is not, one is common. And yet they both have the nobility of their humanity. All is not corrupt in the human race. There is goodness as well. There are good people as well. However, it is inconvenient that that puts a block to plan B. Plan B was to execute Barnardine, who deserves to be executed and was supposed to be executed anyway, but not now and substitute the head, but we can't do that now because, okay, that's not legal. And besides, we have a problem. We move to Act 4, Scene 3. Uh, okay, they are ready to hang Barnardine. What the Duke does then is to show the provost the Duke's seal. He still is not breaking his cover. He is not saying he is the Duke but he pretends to be a friar who bears the official seal of the duke as a warrant that the duke, one, is returning, and two, that the friar has deputy's power from the duke. Therefore, it's okay for us to execute Barnardine. Okay, that gets the provost's objections out of the way, but when Abhorson and Pompey move to hang Barnardine, we have another problem. Barnardine refuses to be executed, Act 4, Scene 3, in what I think is a hilarious scene. In one way, this is a very dark play, and yet, to me anyway, audience, audiences are not always homogeneous. Some people think something is funny and other people don't. But I find Barnardine a hilarious character in his bit part right at the present moment. I will not consent to die this day, that's certain. I'm not in the mood, come ask me later. And it just makes me laugh out loud. And even more than that, I will 
make a case here based on my own response. I like Barnardine. I don't know what his crimes were that made him deserve hanging. But just as how he comes off, I find him a breath of fresh air and actually, in a perverse way, likable, simply by contrast with so many other people in this play. Think of this contrast. So many people here wearing virtuous masks with a lot of mess hidden behind those masks. They are so complicated, these people. Either, on the one hand, they have to wrestle with things that their worldview has not prepared them to meet, like Isabella and Claudio, or they sit around, like Angelo, analyzing their own complications and gnawing their own vitals. They are like characters out of an Ingmar Bergman film at some point. And Barnardine is just a refreshing contrast, and I think Shakespeare probably intended that. He's simple, he's unrepentant, he's undemoralized, and he simply puts his foot down and says, no, I'm not ready to be executed, go away. And we laugh, or I laugh anyway. Well, the zoo has to now come up with like plan C, but he does with a little bit of help from our author who rigs the game in a rather creaky sort of way here. Barnardine has just made himself likable and a sort of weirdly sympathetic character, so we can't kill him now. But it just so happens, says the author, that there's another criminal, Ragazine. We move from Barnardine to Ragazine the pirate, who just happened to expire 20 minutes ago of natural causes. He's already dead. We got a corpse on our hands. How convenient. And the Duke, dressed as the friar, dryly says, what if we do omit this reprobate, in other words, Barnardine, till he were well inclined? Let's omit Barnardine until he's more inclined to be executed. Therefore, we substitute the head of this nobody who's dead already anyhow, so it doesn't matter, so no human beings were harmed in the making of this excuse. And we send that head to Angelo, saying that it's Claudio's head. Rather gruesome with the cut-off heads business, this comes from Shakespeare's source, and to give an indication, we call this a problem comedy, and heaven knows there's reason enough for that, but we should note that the original source, which comes from an Italian author named Cynthia, who also more famously supplied the plot for Othello, in Cynthia's narrative, it all went through. That is, in Cynthia's original version, 
the Isabella character does sleep with the Angelo character to save her brother's life, and Angelo does double-cross her and really kills her brother, which is nasty beyond belief. So it could be darker. Here, Shakespeare hints at those possibilities, but then bypasses them. Whether we find that plausible or not in terms of harsh realism, that eventually comes up against the question of why in comedy, and Shakespearean comedy for sure, why the happy ending is often procured through some sort of twist in the action that is grossly implausible, as this one is. Something about the nature of comedy, and of course that helps give comedy a bad reputation for our, for running away from reality and just being wish-fulfillment escapism. But there is that twist very often in a comedy that produces something. In Midsummer Night's Dream, if there had not been fairies with love juice in that forest, things might have proceeded more realistically, but they would have proceeded simply to drive themselves further into the mess that the human characters were already in, and how you'd get a happy ending out of it would be hard to see. Here, we're going to have a turnaround, and we're beginning to see that there is going to be a turnaround. But the Duke is not done pulling the strings. The Duke then goes and tells Isabella that Angelo really did double-cross her and kill her brother. Your brother is dead. Eventually, next week, when we finish the play, eventually we're going to have to ask, what do we make of this Duke? How do we judge this Duke? Because he plays with people's lives in a way that in real life, we may rightly ask, does anybody, does any human being have a right to do that? He is the person who rules all these other people. He is the Duke of Vienna, therefore these are all his subjects. And this is not a democracy. I guess you could say that in the terms of the kind of law they had at the time, he has the power to do whatever he pleases without anything holding him back. But that's not the whole story even in Shakespeare's time. This is puppeteering with people's lives, playing with their emotions in a way that would have raised eyebrows then as well as now, I think. He tells Isabella, this terrible shock it must be for her, that her brother, she's been double-crossed and her, her brother is really dead. And the characters in the story do find themselves wondering. They don't know the half of it, and yet they're already wondering about the Duke. He's just so strange. He leaves town and abdicates his responsibilities. Angelo, to whom the responsibilities were uh, put on, says at one point in scene four, 
his actions show much like to madness. The, are we even sure the Duke is mentally all there? He, he seems to act sometimes kind of mad. And Lucio at one point calls him the old fantastical Duke of Dark Corners. What gives the Duke the human right to play with people's lives in this way is a question that we will have to ask, even though we're not ready to yet, because we have by no means seen the outcome of all of his puppeteering. But we do get the announcement that ends Act 4. The Duke is coming. The Duke is returning. And that takes us over to Act 5 which is a tour de force. This is not unique to Measure for Measure, but it is rare that the entire fifth act is one gigantic scene. It's not subdivided. It's a continually unfolding scene. And it begins with the arrival. The Duke gets rid of the friar's robe and arrives back at the gates of town as the Duke returning once again, even though, really, he's never been gone. And Isabella makes her public ac accusation of Angelo. This man extorted me and then double-crossed me and killed my brother, even though he is guilty of something far worse than what my brother ever did. And, well, how is that received? She is simply dismissed as mad. The Me Too movement might have a thing or two to say about the play Measure for Measure. She is simply dismissed. Oh, she's crazy. She's crazy and she's twisted. And then moving from, oh, she's crazy, to outright anger, arrest her and find this Friar Lodovic who set her on to this. Who is this dude? And of course, at that point, Lucio, who has previously, we saw in the hilarious scene, maligned, insulted the Duke, to the friar, not realizing that it was the duke. Now, Lucio just can't keep his foot out of his mouth. There are people like that, and he's one of them. Every time he opens his mouth, he shouldn't have. And here he goes again. He maligned the duke to the friar. Now, he maligns the friar to the duke, still not realizing they're the same people. So Isabella accuses and is dismissed and, at that, arrested and is going to be possibly prosecuted herself. Mariana chimes in, arrest her too. <laughs> and where the hell's that friar? At this point, the Duke leaves again. <laughs> People do this in this play. The Duke started the whole action by seeming to leave town. Angelo, if you'll recall, getting bored with Elbow's vague accusations that he could never quite be clear about, suddenly gets up and leaves and turns the case over to Aeschylus, 
suddenly getting up and leaving, the Duke says, you may try your own case, Angelo, which, you know, you think about, I don't know what the state of legal theory was at that point, but the idea that it was conflict of interest to try your own case might just have occurred to some people like the Duke. But no, try your own case, I'm out of here. And the Duke once again, and nobody, everybody just shrugs because there he goes again, he just does this, he disappears. But of course we know, it's like the old superhero things where Clark Kent has to suddenly disappear. Where'd he go? We don't know, but suddenly Superman comes on the scene. It's actually very similar and just as creaky. Uh, the friar reappears. We're back in friar robe and he accuses. He too is attacked, but not before he makes a powerful speech. Still dressed as the friar. Even Aeschylus is sucked in here. Good Aeschylus, commonsensical Aeschylus, still falls for the subterfuge and yells at the friar, why thou unreverend and unhallowed friar, is it not enough thou hast suborned these women to accuse this worthy man? but in foul mouth and in the witness of his proper ear to call him villain? Take him hence and so forth, to the rack with him. He even undoes the usually gentle, sensible Aeschylus. Will tows you joint by joint. Aeschylus loses it. Even Aeschylus apparently has a little bit to learn about how things are often more complicated than they may appear on the surface. This resembles Paradise Lost a great deal. I wonder, in fact, if Milton knew this play, that we are tempted, and we are tempted by false appearances over and over again, and even Aeschylus is taken in here. The friar says, be not so hot. The duke dare no more stretch this finger of mine than he dare rack his own, which is, of course, a joke, because they're the same person. His subject am I not, nor here provincial. My business in this state made me a looker-on in Vienna, where I have seen corruption boil and bubble till it o'errun the stew. Laws for all faults, but faults so countenanced that the strong statues stand like the forfeits in a barber's shop, as much in mock as mark. And Aeschylus is outraged, slander to the state. Away with him to prison. Lucio, foot in mouth again. And was the Duke a fleshmonger, a fool, and a coward, as you then reported him to be? And the Duke replies, asks the friar, you, sir, must change persons with me ere you make my report. You indeed, you indeed spoke so of him, and much, much worse. Oh, thou damnable fellow. The Duke replies, I protest, I love the Duke as I love myself. Ha ha. And Lucio says, come, sir, come, sir, and goes up to him. I'm not going to have 
any more of this. We're going to unhood you, show your knave's visage with a pox to you, show your sheep-biting face and be hanged in an hour. And he pulls off the friar's hood and we get the stage direction and discovers the duke. Oh, shit, thinks Lucy, Lucio. And... On stage, it would have to be timed perfectly, a moment of dead silence, everyone frozen, and then the Duke saying with the utmost dryness, thou art the first knave that e'er made's the Duke. You are the first knave that ever turned a friar into a Duke. Usually, Dukes are the ones who raise people to titles. And all of a sudden, everybody, it isn't just Lucio, everybody realizes that it has hit the fan, including Angelo, who kneels. We are not yet at the end of this play. There is a good deal of the fifth act to go at this point, but this sudden recognition scene, or anagnorisis, as Aristotle called it. We will take up and resolve this as best we can in this difficult yet fascinating play next time.